My name is Rob Stone. I'm a covenant member here at King's Cross Church. You might recognize me on Sundays as the guy who wears the cowboy hat. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. If you have a Bible, why don't you grab it and turn uh, to Exodus chapter 40. Uh, Exodus chapter 40 is where we're going to be camping out. We have arrived at what I would call the end of the beginning, um, kind of the, the end of the beginning of the overarching grand story of the Bible. We, we found out um, in the first few weeks the origins of the world and the reason why there are problems in the world. And then as we moved, we saw what the solution to those problems was going to be. God made covenant promises to a man named Abraham, and he said his descendants were going to become a great nation through whom God would bless the world. And kind of the whole latter part of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus is the story of the establishment of that nation, the nation of Israel. And so it's why we've gone so incredibly slow. If you're somebody who thinks, okay, Easter's next week, and these dudes are on uh, Exodus, and they, they keep saying it's the whole Bible, but I'm looking at my calendar, and like we, we have to go really slow through the first two books because everything else is they're, they're the foundation for everything that comes afterwards. So if you're going to understand uh, the problem of evil or of sin or of the reality of a broken world, you have to have your head wrapped around at least the big narrative of what it is that's going on in Genesis and Exodus. If you're going to understand God's um, God's grace in salvation or his, uh, his sovereign rule over this broken and sinful world and its people. You have to understand the kind of the, the movement of Genesis and Exodus. If you're going to understand later things like miracles and worship and the rise and fall of nations and the establishment of the church and even the end of all things, go back to these beginning opening chapters of the Bible. They're all rooted in the historical realities of Genesis and Exodus. And so as we arrive at the end of Exodus, what we find is that God has been faithful to fulfill his covenant promises. He has saved his people through the blood of a substitute and the work of a mediator. He has saved them from both their bondage in Egypt and for their kind of ongoing struggles in the wilderness to learn how it how it is to live by faith or what it, what it looks like to live by faith so that by the time you get to the end of Exodus, the people of God have moved from suffering to salvation. They've moved from what seem like unanswered cries in Egypt to the, to the kind of remarkable, uh, unmatched power of God's self-revelation. They, they moved from what felt to them for 400 years like the absence of God to the very um, undeniable presence of God in their midst. They move from kind of the in the beginning of Genesis 1-1 to this new beginning that they receive from God in the Exodus. And this movement has taken us from individuals like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob into um, kind of the, the fullness of the people of God in the nation of Israel. And what you have probably noticed if you've been reading along in the devotional plan, if you've been following along in the series, is that 
the first part of Exodus is just packed with action. And so you get Moses and the plagues and the Red Sea crossing and Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. And it's just these huge, big rocks of stories. And there's every, all these things are happening. And then you hit Exodus 24. <laughs> With the people laughing are the people who've been reading along in the devotional plan. Because what happens when you hit Exodus 24 for a lot of us is our eyes start to glaze over a little bit. And we're like, what is, we get into brass hoops in curtains and acacia poles and gold overlay and pomegranates and thread colors in curtains and the dimensions. And you just kind of like, like, what is this has nothing to do with me? What the Ten Commandments? I understand. I don't obey them, but I understand them. That makes sense. But like, what on earth does this have to do with me. So let me just give you, um, point out to you some, some clues that the author, the Holy Spirit, and Moses have given us. So the, what the Bible tells us is God, it took God six days to create everything that is and 40 days to explain to Moses how to build the tabernacle. <laughs> we get one chapter on the structure of the world and 12 about the structure of the tabernacle. Evidently, the tabernacle was really important. Evidently, it really mattered to the Holy Spirit and to Moses and to Israel. And by extension, evidently, it really matters to you and to me. Why? Why does it matter so much? I think it's because it represents, it symbolizes what we lost in Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world, and it foreshadows what we're going to receive again when we get to the end of the story in Revelation 21. It's the presence of God among his people. And so we have talked about how God keeps his covenant promises. He saves his people through the blood of a substitute. He saves them through the work of a mediator. He saves them, we saw last week, and he keeps on saving them. And then we get to this biblical truth that's in your notes this morning, that God saves his people so that they can be with him. There's a purpose in what it is that he's doing. And if you explain the entire structure of the world in one chapter, and then you take 12 with actually a three-chapter interlude, so really it's 15, to explain the structure of the tabernacle, this is a literary signpost that says to you and to me, this matters, pay attention. I was listening to a podcast um, this past week, and there were two hosts, and the question that was asked was, if you could guarantee for sure that there was either an afterlife or not an afterlife, what would you choose? And the one host said, oh, I definitely do not want that. And I thought, what? That's weird. Uh, like, I don't, I don't really understand that. And then he explained. He said, well, because if um, eternity is real, then that makes um, now meaningless. And I thought, well, there's a lot that I disagree with that. Like, I, I don't think longevity makes the immediate short-term 
meaningless. Otherwise, like everybody who got married should get divorced right after the honeymoon because the longer they're married, the less important the wedding is. That doesn't make, that's not logical. I can't apply that across, but, but then where my mind went, and maybe it's because I've been living in, in Exodus for a few weeks now, was, oh, he thinks the point of eternity is more of this. But the point of eternity is not more of this. The point of eternity is that we're in the presence of God forever. And so God saves his people, not so that they can experience a whole bunch more of what they've already had 70 or 80 or 90 years of. It's so that they can be with him. Now, yes, there is art and food and music and literature and work and like there's all these glorious now sin-free realities in all of eternity but the reason any of them are enjoyable forever is because we're in the presence of God doing them not in a broken sin-filled wrecked world and so like I'm in this building uh, five or six days a week, depending on, on the week. Do you know which day is the best for me? Today. Do you know why? Because you're here. Because you're here. So Sundays are my favorite. It's not the, the point. Like, there's a great theologian. His name's Dave Matthews. And this is what he said. <laughs> there's this great quote. It says, turns out, not where, but who you're with that really matters. This, God saves his people so that they can be with him. And the entire second half of the book of Exodus is driving home this truth. God saved his people so they can be with him. Chapters 25 to 31 are God's instruction on the tabernacle. And then Exodus 35 to 40 is the construction of the tabernacle. And in the middle, you get these three chapters that seem weird and out of place. Is this story of the golden calf. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai while he's up there. Um, he is getting the Ten Commandments from God. The people of Israel are down at the bottom of the mountain. They've already, they're already breaking two of the ten. They haven't even got them yet. And Moses comes down. It, like it's been more than he's up there 40 days. The people are getting restless. They start worshiping this idol in the shape of a cow. And God sees this in Exodus 33.3. And he says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, and that was the promise that he would, had given them. He, he said, this is where I'm going to get you out of Egypt, and this is where I'm going to take you. The, the sin of the people is not going to make God break his promise. This was says, you go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you lest I consume you on the way. For you're a stiff-necked people. And so what God says to Israel is, I tell you what, you can have everything that I promised you, but you're not going to have me. And then Moses pleads with God on behalf of the people in Exodus 33, 15. And he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us, Israel, up from here. In other words, what Moses says is, no, no, no. If we don't have you, we don't want all that stuff. The point was not the stuff. The point was that you were going to be with us. And so if that's not going to be there, we, we don't want that stuff. But God relents. He renews his covenant in um, in chapter 35, the, the construction of the tabernacle begins. And its importance cannot be overstated. 
to this point in the narrative. And so I'm going to get to your sermon notes. I don't want you to get like uneasy and restless here. I'll get there eventually. We will land the plane. But if we jump to the sermon notes and the truths that are in these chapters, they're going to sound to you like generic, pithy, spiritual truisms if you don't understand the context in which they're given. If you haven't been reading through and rereading through and thinking about Exodus 24 to 40, and I just lob these things out there, you're going to miss the gravity of them. So let me give you just a little bit of background um, on the, the meaning and the symbolism of the tabernacle first, and then we'll get to, okay, what does it mean for me? You with me? Okay, there are a series of different Hebrew words that are used to refer to this structure that we will call the tabernacle. In Exodus 25, 8, it's called a sanctuary. It is a holy place that is set apart. It's a sacred space. In Exodus 27, 21, it's called the tent of meeting because that was the place where God was going to meet with his people as represented by Moses and Aaron in the priesthood. In Exodus 38, 21, it's called the tent of testimony because it contained in it both the written testimony of God's grace in the form of the stone tablets, but also because it it bore an ongoing testimony just by its existence of the covenant faithfulness of God to be among his people. And so you have in the tabernacle a holy place where God meets with his people according to his covenant as a testimony of his grace. It's a symbolic reminder of what was lost in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. There is in the tabernacle an outer courtyard. It surrounds an inner holy place in which inside of that in turn in the very center is the most holy place, the place where the mercy seat of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the the very symbolic presence of God himself resided. So too, Genesis tells us that in all of Eden, God planted a garden, and inside of that garden was the tree of life that was the very center. And so the tabernacle and later its permanent replacement, the temple, temple, are these symbolic representations of new Edens, the places where mankind can be with God. And so if you're reading through the chapters and you think, what is the point of all of this detail? Everything has a point. Everything matters because it's laden with this symbolism that God is giving to his People And so, for example, there's a ton of detail about carvings and decorations and flowers and trees. And why? Because it reminds us of the garden. These nature symbols remind us of what we lost. The shape of the physical spaces themselves become increasingly perfect the closer you get to the presence of God. And so you go from kind of a, a larger rectangle to a smaller one to a cube. 
in the very most holy of places. The metals, if you read through it, become increasingly pure. They go in the outer courtyard from being linen and bronze, and then it moves into silver and gold and silver mixed. And by the time you get into that cube of the most holy place, everything is gold and pure gold. It's getting more and more and more perfect the closer you get to the presence of God. To enter into each space, you had to move from east to west, symbolically representing moving from outside the presence of God to into his presence. After Adam and Eve sinned, if you go back and read in Genesis, God put cherubim with flaming swords to guard the entrance to uh, the Garden of Eden. And then you get into the tabernacle and there are cherubim woven into the curtains and there are cherubim over the mercy seat. But guess what they don't have? Flaming swords. Because they're not there to keep people out. People can come into the presence of God. Again, the tabernacle was a holy place where God met with his people according to his covenant as a testimony of his grace. Tabernacle is also a symbolic promise. A promise of what we will regain in the new heaven and the new earth. John gets this vision and he uses symbolic language in Revelation 21 to describe the new heaven and the new earth. And he says that the new holy city, Jerusalem, comes down and its dimensions are a perfect cube. And it's adorned with all of these decorations that mimic exactly the decorations that are going to be in the tabernacle and the temple. Why? Because now in the new heaven and the new earth, all the people of God can be in the presence of God forever. And the gates are open and there's no flaming swords. And this symbolic tent complex that was set up has now become an eternal reality where the people of God, in fact, the entire universe has become a place where the people of God go to a holy place to meet with him according to his covenant as a testimony of his grace. This is why we rejoice. When we read John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word literally is tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. This is why the religious elite got so angry with Jesus in John 2.19 when he said, if you'll destroy this temple, I'll raise it up again in three days. And they got so angry at him because they worshiped this building so much. But then John says down in verse 21 that after the resurrection, the disciples understood Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. So too, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice in the heavenly tent putting an end to the sacrificial system. Because all of these symbols lead us up to a place where we find out that Jesus himself is the holy place where people can meet God according to the terms of his covenant as a testimony of his grace. And then Paul says, oh now, all Christians in Ephesians 2 Verses 21 and 22 are being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, we also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So 
In Jesus, if you are a Christian, God makes you a holy place where he dwells according to the terms of his covenant as a testimony of his grace. Do you see? Like this is not mindless detail. This is glorious, life-giving, world-altering, promise-fulfilling symbols of a reality that is far greater than some tent in a desert. Far greater even than a temple covered in gold on the top of a mountain that you could see from miles away. These are carefully crafted, intricately detailed, beautiful reminders that God saves His people so that they can be with Him. When that happens, when the people of God are in the presence of God, everything changes. And we see that in the way that the initial construction of the tabernacle is explained to us. In the initial way that things are happening in it, it gives us this picture of change that happens when the people of God are in the presence of God. Which brings us to Exodus 40, the end of the beginning. These differences are on display. There's at least four of them that I want to show you. First, in the presence of God, the people of God obey His word. In the presence of God, the people of God obey His word. Exodus 40, verses 1 to 2, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect a tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall. If you keep reading, in the next 13 verses, God gives 15 more you shall statements. 16 of them in 14 verses. You shall, you shall, you shall, you shall. And then in verse 16, we read this. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. And if you skip down to verse 33, it says, So Moses finished the work. Because in the presence of God, the people of God obey his word. If you show me someone who is not particularly bothered by sin, someone who doesn't really see the value in regular rhythms of rest and worship, someone who has little or no interest in loving their neighbors or serving their family, someone who doesn't practice generosity, someone who doesn't prioritize healthy relationships. If you show me someone whose life is characterized by those things, I'm not talking about a momentary struggle. Somebody who, whose life is characterized by these things, I will show you someone disconnected from God. Because that won't won't be a picture of your life if you're consistently spending time in the presence of the Lord. If you are regularly spending time in God's Word, if you're regularly fellowshipping with and serving alongside the body of Christ in the church, if you're regularly humbling yourself before God in worship and in prayer, you will, over time, increasingly walk in obedience to His Word. That will happen. It's one of the reasons why when we say we want you to grow in the gospel, one of the things we talk about is spiritual habits. 
because those spiritual habits actually form you. You, you don't develop them after you're fully formed into the image of Christ. They help you to become that. And the more that you're in his presence, the more you will obey his word. And the more you obey his word, the more you'll want to be in his presence more. This is what happens when the people of God are with God. Second, the presence of God, the people of God are consecrated for his service. They're consecrated for his service. I know that's a little bit of an antique kind of word, but it's in the text, and it matters. That's a sacred word. They're not just used. <laughs> They're consecrated. Exodus 40, verse 9, God tells Moses to take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. It says the same thing about the altar in verse 10, the same thing about the basin in verse 11, and then in verses 12 and 13. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as a priest. And then in verses 15 and 16, the same thing happens with Aaron's sons. Everything in the presence of God from furniture to people is consecrated to the service of God. Now this really matters if you're a Christian or if you would become a Christian, if you're someone who's just exploring the claims of the Bible and you're kind of investigating faith, we're thrilled that you're here. Hope that you will keep investigating that. But this is going to matter to you if you become a Christian because Peter says in his first letter, in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, of all Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So just like there's no longer a tabernacle, there's no longer a temple, why? We don't need them because the Spirit of God now dwells in the people of God. So too, there's no longer a formal priesthood. Why? Because every Christian is called into a life of priesthood. We have been made a royal priesthood. And so this is something that you can't delegate to me. This is something like you don't clock into this when you come to church and then clock out when you go to brunch. That's not the way it works. This means if you are a Christian, everything in your life is sacred. Everything in your life is consecrated to God. That means that your job, your recreational pursuits, your family time at home this afternoon, your sex life, your browser history, your sleep, your diet, it's all consecrated to God because you have been consecrated to God for his glory and for your good. He saved you so that you could be with him so that you could serve him. That's how come when we talk about, Megan talked earlier about living on mission, one of those things that we talk about is living on mission in your spheres of influence because it's not just about being here. 
It's everywhere the Christian goes. Their consecration of service to God goes with them into every sphere of influence you have. Friendship groups, family, vocation, recreation, all of it. It's all holy. There's no sacred secular divide in God's kingdom. All of his people are consecrated. You are a royal priesthood, he says. Third, in the presence of God, the people of God are given a new beginning. A new beginning. Exodus 40, 17. This is easy to miss if you're just kind of reading through casually. But it says, in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. It was exactly one year to the day from the Passover. That, that's not an accident. Israel had quite literally been given a new beginning. God had saved his people from bondage in Egypt. He made a way for them to now dwell in his presence. And it was such a radical change that it warranted a reset of time itself. So to us, yes, who live in 2023 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 2023, Christian brothers and sisters, a radical shift in history happened when the Son of God tabernacled with us. When God made a way through his life and his death and his victorious resurrection that it might be possible for you and I to be saved from our bondage to sin and to be in the presence of God forever. We reset time because of that radical shift. And if you're not a Christian yet, can I encourage you that that isn't just a worldwide thing. That can be true for you personally. If you will come to a place of repentance and faith, God promises that you too can receive a new beginning. You can be made new. In the words of Jesus, you can be born again. That's what he likened it to, new life. It doesn't matter how heavy the sins of your past are. It doesn't matter what struggles you're wrestling with presently. You can receive a fresh start. You can receive a new beginning. That's what happens to people who enter into the presence of God. They get a new beginning. Fourth, the presence of God, the people of God are led by his spirit. They're led by his spirit. In verses 34 to 38, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. For Israel, the presence of God dwelled in the tabernacle, and it led them by day and by night. Everywhere they went, they went because the presence of God was going there. And so too now for Christians, the Spirit of God dwells in us and leads us by day and by night. And in everything that we do, his intention is that we'll be led by the Spirit in doing that. 
So here's my question for you as we begin to land the plane. Does that characterize your life? Does this describe your life? Are you someone who, uh, you won't be perfect in it. None of us are perfect in it. But, but are you someone who's growing in your knowledge of and obedience to the word of God? Are you doing better at that now than you were a year ago? Are you growing in your understanding of your own calling, your own gifting, how it is that the Lord has wired you, the places where he's granted you influence? Are you seeking more and more now than you used to to live a life consecrated to God so that every aspect of your life is shaped by your relationship with him? Do you know that you have come to a place of repentance and faith, that there was a time when you were not a Christian. And you can say, I, 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 there was a point in my life where I got a new beginning. Now, maybe you can't say it was 2.36 on Tuesday, but, but can you say there was a time before I knew God, before I knew Christ, before I had faith, and I got a new beginning? Or if you're not there yet, would you like to have a conversation about that? What does it look like to get a fresh start and a new beginning from God? Are you trying as best as you can to be led by the Spirit of God through prayer, through the godly counsel of men and women around you and relationships that you have? Like, that's just a sprinkling of what it looks like to be in the presence of God, to follow God, to know him, much less what it would be like to do that perfectly in eternity. It's a, it's a limited preview of it. But does that characterize your life? Do you recognize that God saved you so that you could be with him? And do you desire that? Is there a change in your life? Because that's happened. That's the point of God saving his people. That he might display his glory to the world through them and that they might be with him. And that's what the tabernacle teaches us. Let's pray. Father, we tremble to think what might happen to us if we were in your presence. And yet... Miraculously, because of the work of our Lord Jesus, you have allowed us to do just that. Pray that you would help us to understand what it means to live in your presence. That we would be the type of church where people experience your presence. And grow in these disciplines, these habits, these ways of being that we might increasingly reflect your glory, that we might increasingly know what it means to be with you, to be changed by being with you. Would you help us in these things? In Christ's name, amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.